Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Distance Radio, and this is a podcast, Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Frank Mills. We'll be talking about recording and working on albums and the biz part of the music biz, and we'll get some more uh, insights and perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Frank obviously has a lengthy list of accomplishments as a composer and arranger, keyboardist, producer, and writer, all for which he has won many awards and accolades on his way to becoming an iconic member of the Canadian musical landscape. So really, thanks for joining me today, Frank. I appreciate it. How are you? Fine, Dan. Thank you very much. I'm very well, and uh, things are good. You know, I, at 81, you never know what's going to happen these days. So, Well, a day uh, at a time, I guess they say you're happy and healthy as far as that life goes. Yeah, you wake up and say, well, it's great to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. Well, you sound like you're still uh, you're still banging away. So that's great. That's great news. And I'm really appreciate you coming on because you're, you're one of those guys that we had on our list and said, well, we got to talk to Frank and, and uh, just get his story and, and share some of his stories with our listeners. So that was a good one. I don't know that I've been on a bucket list before, but thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So, so you were born in Montreal, so you're a Canadian through and through. Yes, I am still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh good yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Living in, living in Vermont now, but uh, that's a long story. You might want to get into that later. But Yeah. I'll right ask now. you about that. Sure. And uh, so when you grew up, did you learn, you spoke French and English when you were growing up? Uh, I learned French in the uh, English school system at the time. Okay. There were two. You, you were either one or yeah. the other. And I lived in an English sort of section of Montreal called the town of Mount Royal. Okay. Which was a very young, up and coming sub- suburb, I guess you'd call yeah. it. It's old now, but it was young then. Right. And the high schools were new and the school system was all new and everything was marvelous. It was really a great place to grow up as a kid. I mean, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I wondered about the French and English because people, they assume that you speak both if you grew up in Montreal, but there was a division there, I guess, at some point, right? You were, you were part of the English speaking group or the French speaking group. Well, it sort of goes by community, and, and I don't okay. think a lot of people kind of realize that. You know, hmm. there are, I forget the population at the time was about 6 million people in the province of Quebec, 80% of whom spoke French every day, all day. Hmm. They, they never spoke any English because they lived in Sherbrooke and, and outlying communities where there were no English people. Right, okay. Most of the English people lived in Montreal. So we were brought up in, a, in an English-speaking suburb, really pro- primarily, but there were some French people there. But so yeah. I went through the English school system until I got to high school. And that's when you started learning French. Okay. And there's a difficulty there because it, it resulted in what was a rather embarrassing learning of a language when they taught high French. Well, they don't speak high French in the province of Quebec. Right. Gotcha. They speak Jewel, which is a combination of Oh, uh, you know, accents and and communities, and it varies from where you are in the province. So Hmm. I had to do uh, extra work in my French to A, to get it up to par to be conversational, and B, to get rid of that Parisian accent and talk like a real Quebecer. So I I managed to do that by working in the iron ore company for two summers. Are you bilingual? Yeah, I, I was bilingual. Now, okay. I've lived in Vermont for 20 years. <laughs> I'm afraid I've lost most of it. Right. Because the Vermonters, of course, have a very bad habit of massacring the beautiful French language. Yes, there you go. And so 
uh, poor chap like uh, Henri Belanger would be pronounced Henry Belanger here. Oh, of course, yeah, the Anglo side. Very embarrassing. (laughs) That's funny. Constantly correcting my American friends. (laughs) Yes. Well, the reason I ask that is because you know when you when you grow up learning languages, they just become your natural ability is developed as you grow up. And and I read here you started playing piano when you were very young, like maybe three or four years old. Is that right? Yeah, I started banging on it when I was three or four. I didn't so take you, formal lessons till I was seven. Okay, but you grow up with it, right? Like a language. So for you, you, oh, you yeah. your fingers have always been on a piano ever since you can remember, probably, right? Yeah, my mother was a great pianist. She was very mm. good. Home pianist, home home educated pianist, but she could really play very well. And uh, of course, I remember family gatherings around the piano, which occurred just about every Friday night. I think beer had something to do with it. <laughs> it was fun. Well, we had a good time. No, it's good. And, and it's funny because that kitchen music sort of idea where you just grow up and, you know, your uncle plays the banjo and your grandpa plays the fiddle and you play the piano and it, it, it you just get to, it just becomes part of who you are. Well, there's a great irony here in my life cycle. Uh, of course, now I'm looking back a little more often than I used to, but uh, as a kid in my, my three and four, you asked about my childhood. Well, we were, mm-hmm. our first family home was not in Mount Royal and uh, didn't matter that that's not important. But the point was, as a child, my favorite toys were a set of farm implements, a tractor and a wagon and a log loader and all this stuff that you use on a farm. And all of that was placed and parked meticulously under the piano every night. And uh, I did this as a child for years, and <laughs> not knowing that <laughs> the poor piano was being used as a garage and not That's as a funny. piano. That's okay. Yeah. Well, now here I am in Vermont with my tractor <laughs> and my wagon and all the rest that's of the funny. farm stuff. Yeah. So I've come full circle, Dan. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, that's good. Well, it sounds like you got a good life for yourself there. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. very bucolic, and it's yeah. very. very I, we have eight cows, which makes it fun, and oh, we, nice. we babysit for them. I, I know we don't milk them, and no, I don't look right. after them, but <laughs> they they eat our grass up there. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. So you lost your parents early in your life. How did that affect your life path? Well, it it affected it more than I ever thought it would. Hmm. As a young guy, I was thought of, oh, Frank, he, he'll get over anything. You know, he's a responsible kid. And and I guess perhaps I was. I, I was sort of president of the ski club and valedictorian and all the good things you get in high school. And that all went by the wayside because I th- my, my father had his first heart attack when I was five. And I remember oh, that. Yeah. And my mother arranged for me to go and see him at the hospital, thinking that we'd probably never see him again. Well, he lived another 11 years. Okay. But uh, it was, you know, nip and tuck all for those 11 years. We never really knew whether he was going to make it till the next Christmas. And then uh, tragedy of all tragedy, when I was 10, I learned my mother had come down with cancer. And, oh, okay. uh, she lasted for seven years. He lasted okay. for six at the time. So yeah, it was a childhood that was fraught with uh, a lot of anxiety that I didn't really know about. I didn't know what was happening. Yeah. By the time I got into late high school, between my father and my mother's passing, uh, I has had seriously attention deficit disorder, which wasn't mm. diagnosed in those days. Right. And it was the start of a long mental struggle, which didn't end until I was about 45 years of age. Interesting. Yeah. Well, because I saw that and, and I thought right away, well, that must have affected your your psyche and your path in, in certain ways. And you managed to find some success through that, but but probably not easy. 
Is that accurate? Oh, it's been, it was very difficult. And I think it was hard on the family. It was hard on me. It was hard on everybody who crossed my path because I had some serious neurosis at the time. Our family life was really quite good. My parents were very loving and kind, and we had everything we wanted, my sister and I. And it certainly, it was a very functional as opposed to a dysfunctional right, family. Okay. But yeah. it became dysfunctional because it, it left me. Uh, it wasn't because I chosen to leave or because there was something wrong it was just something nobody had under control mm-hmm. and as a result it ended up in some serious problems but uh, fortunately looking back on it uh, i have a very happy retirement and uh, yeah and the music business was great it was a great release for me i, I used well, that too yeah well for sure i mean it's a that was an exciting time you grew up in the in the perfect time in the golden age of music as they say the 60s 70s and into the 80s i mean it's an exciting time and Yeah. Were you chasing the rock star dream? You know, that never really, uh, I guess, excited me too much. I loved rock music. Don't get me wrong. You know, Bill Haley was the biggest (laughs) thing since Swiss Beat back when I was a kid. And uh, my music has always been very eclectic. My father loved opera and he liked classical music. So he was the influence there. While my mother liked pop songs and, and, you know, she was the... uh, the more modern influence as a kid, I gravitated more to her style. And as I got older, gravitated to the classical side. And then as I got into involvement with lessons in piano and eventually at McGill, uh, there was no question about it that I was going to be on the road to some classical form, if not necessarily. So it's ironic that I got my first gold record playing piano with the bells back in 1971. Yeah, and a lot a lot of people don't know that they don't know that I was playing the piano on the hit "Stay a While." Yeah, and I didn't yeah. write it. I I did do the arranging for it. Right. Uh, I, I I think I played. Yeah, I played the harmonica solo. On it. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, but uh, yeah. no, they're very cool. Well, I mean, so so I guess music was sort of a solace for you in some measure too, right? It was a kind of that that comfort place where you felt good. As a young person, uh, yeah, yeah, it really played a big role in my daily happiness. And then, of course, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, there were very depressing moments. And uh, I gravitated more to the Mahler and the the, the Rachmaninoffs than I did (laughs) Paul McCartney. Well, I was wondering about that because I thought, well, were you, you influenced by Ray Charles or Liberace or Floyd Kramer? Did you listen to those guys? Ray Charles, probably my favorite artist as far as okay. all-round artists go. You know, great yep. vocalist, uh, in, amazing interpretation with his very basic understanding of melody and counterpoint. He was a master at the piano. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, he's been one of the most influential people. I loved that Country and Western Hits album. He did. Yeah. Well, I was up in Labrador at the time when there were 5,000 guys and two girls and uh, the thought yeah. of country and western hits was kind of cool at yeah. the time yeah. <laughs> and beethoven didn't cut it up there you know? yeah well, i guess and yeah. then liberace was he the real deal or uh i looked at well this gets onto an open box here um yeah. since you've opened the pandora here uh no, sure liberace to me was a showman okay he was an excellent pianist. Don't get me wrong. That guy could really play. There was no doubt about that. But it was this was the advent of television, of course. He came right. on shortly after TV, you know, came into our house. And um, 
I, I caught on right away looking at him that, that this was more show than piano. Well, yeah, he and, filled the room when he walked in, right? Yeah, no <laughs> and they say, you know, that television is 80% visual and only 20% audio. So there you go. that doesn't speak yeah. well for us musicians on, <laughs> on television. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because my old manager used to say a lot of people listen with their eyes. Well, sure. And, and today thought, it's got yeah. to ridiculous. I mean, uh, yeah. those girls today that are singing wouldn't have been allowed in a strip club 30 years right. ago. Right. Yeah, know? there you go. <laughs> But you listen with your eyes, you look up and you go, oh, I like that, that Liberace boy. Look at the rings he's wearing. Look at the leather or the fur coat he's got on. This guy's that great. Was all of it. Yeah, that was all of it. <laughs> well, that's the, the way today is too. You yeah, know? You look, at, look at all the big stars today. They're yeah. just, it's more, more sizzle than, than steak. Yeah, right? more sizzle yeah. than, yeah, yeah, exactly. And what about Floyd Kramer? Floyd Kramer, I was, he actually recorded Music Box Dancer, which oh, no. I can just, I never heard it, but I can imagine those three little triplets he used to <laughs> plunk, 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 you know, <laughs> somewhere in there. <laughs> there were a lot of guys recorded it. And uh, yeah, of gosh, course, it, yeah. it was fun to listen to them and, and their renditions of it. Yeah. Some of them were just deplorable, but uh, there's a bit of uh, um, amateurishness to, to the production of Music Box Dancer, which I take responsibility for production's never been my forte but right having had a taste of it with the bells i went on and left them and within a year had love me love me love which was a number one hit in Canada. right absolutely and yeah. um and that was sort of the same sort of treatment you know yeah it's fun oh interesting so i have to just as an aside i have to ask you about ragtime piano could you maybe for our listeners just just describe what that is and then i know i know what it sounds like but how would you define it and then you've got frank's rag which is very uplifting and, and cool. So well, thank you. It, it almost sounds a bit plagiaristic because ragtime itself is, is somewhat, it's such a narrow field. And there, there was an English performer called Mrs. Mills who played a wicked ragtime piano. And the ragtime issue is a lot like the Italian tango. It, it came out of uh, the brothels of years and years ago. Hmm. And it was the entertainment that would be there uh, that was provided in addition to the other entertainment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was fascinating to me that it turned into a, a whole cult thing. And I could never gra get my, my hands around the whole thing. I could get my eyes and ears around it, but somehow my hands weren't, weren't in other than, uh, you know, um, the great ragtime piece that was done for the movie. Um, and you're leaving me here, Dan, because I'm going to yeah. digress for a minute. But um, ragtime never really caught on to me other than the fact that we decided to put it into the show we were doing just to change the venue a bit and to okay. the repertoire and open yeah. the up. Yeah, because like I said, I know what it sounds like. It sounds like rolling um, arpeggios or something. It's it, got that yeah, it is. It sense. is. That's exactly right. And uh, you can only listen to a, a few of them at a time. Because you do start to see the similarity. Right. Uh, the Maple Leaf Rag is a wonderful one. I've always mm. loved it. Could never play it. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> being honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. like the Boogie Woogie guys and stuff too. Like I talked to John Capek and stuff, and he was really the left-hand guy. And they could do the practically a whole song and, and all the bass parts and everything on the And they got really, really good at that. It's funny you mention that because uh, <laughs> I developed my left hand. And uh, a lot of this came out of playing early piano with unamplified music, which had become amplified and I couldn't compete with it because the mm. piano was the last thing to be amplified. 
Yeah. I mean, you could stick a mic in it, but it never sounded very good. It wasn't quite the same. Yeah, it wasn't an electric instrument, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I had to compete with the screaming guitars all the time. And out of that came uh, my sort of signature sound, which is playing the upper register of the piano, tinkly piano, I call it. Right. And But I did develop my own bass hand. And the bass hand, the, my left hand, made up for the bass guitar, the rhythm guitar, and partially the drums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, that's yeah. that's been my bass. If you look at any of the yeah. quasi-rock stuff, I wrote like a classical rock and, and a few of those things. Yeah, so uh, you're playing sort of a percussive bass line, which is... Correct. Is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, it's oh, the that's very cool. pick up before every bar, you know. Yeah. Ba-doom. Yeah, very cool. No, that's neat. So you're you're like a thousand other kids, I guess, playing music and and having fun. And then you you ended up at McGill. I guess it, it says here you were an accidental musician. You were you, you didn't go into music and say that's what I want to do for my life. No, I had been uh, when I went into high school. Of course, I took up trombone because there was a marching band, and we had a wonderful music uh, musical director named Harrison Jones, Doctor Jones. He was a wonderful man. Uh, just made kids want to do what he wanted them to do. He had this gift. And he yeah. was, oh, God, I'll never forget him. So I took up trombone with him for the four years I was at high school. Oh, but my nice. piano teacher from the beginning, uh, when I was seven, up until the time I was 12, when I went into high school, and uh, she said to me, you're getting a bit too good for me to handle you. So she said, I want to re- refer you to a a piano teacher in the University of Montreal. He's a French, lovely French man named Martin Lewis, and probably Martin Lewis. But anyway, uh, he taught me for four years. Nice. And I got quite proficient. I guess I got up to grade 11 piano with him. So I went into McGill hoping to go. I went into business for the first two weeks because I thought <laughs> that's where I wanted to go. And then I decided I was going to be a doctor. So I changed from commerce, went into science. That lasted for three years. And I had repeated my second year. And calculus got rid of my medical ambitions. Oh, there you go. I was the doctor. So (laughs) it just so happened that the music faculty of McGill at the time was on the way down to the recruiting office for the Navy, which is where I was on my way to after having been Ah. told I couldn't come back to McGill. Uh, I laugh at it now because uh, none other than one of the fellows who played trumpet in the band at high school, Bill Walker, at Mount Royal High, he was in the marching band with me. He played trumpet, good trumpet player too, I must say. He came down the steps of the hmm. music faculty at this moment, which was an act of God. It was like a lightning stroke yeah. and, and he uh, strike. And he came down the stairs and he said, he used to call me Rack because I'd always play Rack Maninoff with him. He loved it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, he said, Rack, I haven't seen you for three years. What's up? Where, where are you going? I said, I'm going to join the Navy because I just flunked out of McGill. He said, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. I said, well, watch me. And he said, no, no, come on in. I want you to meet somebody. So I thought at this point I had nothing to lose uh, other than the fact that I was intrigued by the music conservatory notice on the door. Yeah. And I went in and took the entrance exam with a, a wonderful professor of composition named Asphalt Jurog. He was a, mm. a Hungarian immigrant yeah. to, um, to Canada. And God, what a nice man he was. And yeah. um, he basically, there were only two in the composition class. But I took the entrance exam with Billy Walker waiting for me in the 
in the waiting room while, while I wrote the exam. And Dr. Van Holt came out and he said to me, well, he said, not bad. He's 96%. That's no, pretty good. That's pretty respectable. Said, yeah. He said, I want you in my class. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I'd love to be in your class. Wow. However, Boy, talk about, uh, yeah. sorry. Talk about a left turn though. Like, well, as I say, it was like a lightning bolt. You know, it, it really was weird how that happened. Yeah. And I have to say this. I think it was Einstein who said, you know, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. Yes, there you go. <laughs> it's a <laughs> wonderful sentence if you think about it. Yes, absolutely. And I, we won't get into the religious thing right now, but no, okay. that said, I kind of believe it. You know, there was a lot of coincidence in my life, some of it quite spooky. And this was the first time that I really felt Things were out of my control. Yeah. Anyway, I spent two years with Dr. Anhalt, and that was great. We, really we had good. two wonderful years, and I enjoyed his teaching. Yeah. Bert Backrack had been to the McGill Conservatory, as did Galt McDermott, who wrote Hare. Mm. And uh, they were all before me. So I had some legacy to look up to. Yeah, very and, nice. Uh, they all left after a couple of years because they just didn't want to go any further in the classical approach to music. Right. And that was my story. I wanted to get out and play the rock stuff. Not yeah. necessarily hard rock, but joining the Bells were a very soft rock group. Mind you, yeah, rock well, at the time was soft, you know. So Yeah, well, and, and you guys found your niche. You found your place in the Canadian music scene, right? Exactly. Well, they so, did, and then I joined them. You know, was stro- that yeah. was another stroke of luck. Yeah, uh, I, I had been in real estate for a little while trying to make some money to put on the table and mm. pay the rent and buy a new piano, <laughs> yeah. which I did. Yeah. But uh, when I left uh, real estate, you know, I decided, well, what am I going to do? So I remember telling my boss that I was leaving real estate to go join a rock band and he looked at me as if I was crazy. <laughs> yeah. well. And uh, partly was, I suppose. And, and um, later... I guess within about three weeks, the phone rang and it was Cliff Edwards from the Bells. Mm. And he said to me, would you like to play piano for the group? And I said, this is amazing. You know, I've only been out of sort of out of the picture for two or three weeks. And there's Canada's top group at the time. Yeah. So I couldn't wait to do that. And they were yeah. great. We learned a lot about recording, which is a whole other aspect of something I really loved and enjoyed. Yeah. Well, how much of that involved, you know, sort of chasing the rock star dream or chasing hit songs or touring? Did you do a lot of that? I've never, ever looked at life as being a dollar situation. To me, I always said to my kids, you know, just love what you're doing and it'll work. Don't worry about the money. Eventually, you'll be fine. Yeah. And uh, that has proven true. Uh, Certainly did for me. It was money never entered into it. So the aspiration of a the multinational rock band scene didn't hit me the same way, just my love of recording with the orchestra. Yeah. Okay. And there was a distinct difference, I suppose, uh, to this day. I mean, I've I've dabbled with rock. It's like, you know, um, Mason Williams and I met on a program in Halifax, Nova Scotia. John Allen Cameron had a TV show there for a long time. I met Mason, who had written Classical Gas, Right. And I'd say he was my mentor. You know, he said, come on, you write a lot of this stuff for strings and orchestra. <laughs> Do something yeah. like mine. So I went home and wrote a classical rock. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's how that happened. But that never oh, went anywhere. It's really, yeah. you know, it didn't go as far as I thought it would go. I, yeah. I thought I could end up playing rock with symphony orchestras. That was my ambition. And I must have done it at least 30 or 40 times. But oh, okay. not, it wasn't my focus, you know. 
Right. One thing that always strikes me when I do these podcasts is when you, when you go back over the timelines and especially for, yeah. for you, from the vantage point you're at, you know, you, you end up in Montreal, you're going to school, you're studying music, you're playing in a band, then you're out of the band. Then you're like, the timelines are very short when you look at it, looking back. Looking back, they are. Yeah, I mean, it's a ten-year overnight success story. You know, like all of them. <laughs> but um, my point, I guess, is that you were in the Bells, and then you left them to to do a solo career. Is that right? That that was after only Absolutely. a few years. Yeah, right? I left them when Steo. I was right up on the top of the charts, and everybody in the Bells looked at me and said, "Are you stupid? You know, we were just yeah. getting going here." Yeah, I suppose I made the decision. I was concerned about their management. I was concerned okay. about how far their talent would take them as opposed to my own to be very mm. selfish. Yeah. Fair. And yeah. Uh, looking back on it, it was a good decision. Um, the same people at Polydor records who were also contracted with the bells to, to do recordings. Uh, I got to know Frank Gould, who was the artist and repertoire director and okay. a, a nice fellow named Guy Bertrand, who was vice president of the company. I got to know them well, and, and they always said, you know, if you ever leave the Bells, come and see us because we'd like to do something with you. So oh, okay. uh, I had only been out of the Bells. I left them in March of 1971. Come September, I had the hit with Love Me, Love Me, Love. So it was right. quick. Yeah. And that nearly almost didn't happen either. That was a fluke. Yeah. What, but, what's uh, the fluke about that? Well, mm. uh, having left the Bells, everybody at Polydor sort of wondered what I was up to. And Frank Gould, who was, was a nice guy. I'm not so sure. I think he might have been an American pop guy who was uh, hired by Polydor in Montreal to sort of internationalize the company a bit. It was a bit European-based company. Okay. Yeah. And so um, Frank Gould said to me, you've got anything kicking around? You know? And I said, well, I got this instrumental album that you probably won't like. But he said, well, let me listen to it. So Frank being the typical pop guy you know he listened to the first 10 seconds and he said no, i don't like that one yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Go> on <laughs> said, no, i don't like that one and we got to song number 11 now you never put 11 songs on an album back yeah. in 1970 right it was 10 songs and that was it you yeah. were not getting to get the extra two cents <laughs> so knowing all of that i insisted on putting 11 songs in that album just to be frank mills and uh and Frank Gould said to me, well, I like this left, this last tune there, Music Box Dancer. He said, it's kind of catchy. Mm. Um, no, I'm sorry. Love me, love me, love me. Love me, love me, yeah. He said, yeah, yeah he said, that's kind of kind of catchy. Have you got words to it? And I said, yes. And he put the record on in his office, having just listened to it. said, okay, let's do it again, but just time you sing it. And so I stood there. Now, listen, Dan, I've never thought of myself as being a vocalist, ever. It was just not in the cards. Yeah. And there I am in his office, singing my heart out, trying to make it sound as good as I yeah. could. And he said, I love it. Here's money. Go record it tomorrow. We're going to have a hit with this record. He said, it's a dead hit. Wow. He was right. And, and where did you record it? I went to Andres Perry Studios, who have all met those same people with the bells who recorded yeah. them. Okay. And uh, I went to that studio. And I remember, actually, when we recorded Stay A While, I was on the way to do the overdub of the harmonica part, and I got a flat tire. Oh. And I thought, this is not good. So I parked the car with its flat tire, got in a taxi, and went to the recording studio, which is the same studio I recorded Love Me, Love Me, Love. Oh, on me. the instrumental album, I had already recorded there. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, I've already cut that there, the instrumental okay. part of it. And this is all in Montreal. A, You're still in Montreal. All in Montreal, yeah. a thing called Seven of My Songs and some others. Yeah, I did and see that. Had yeah. to bridge over troubled waters on it and oh. fire and rain, you know, the old. Yeah, Lovely. James Taylor too. Yeah. James Taylor too. Yeah. Well, so yeah, because I never thought of you as a singer because you were so well known as a, as an instrumental guy. But then I listened to that. There's the you got the harp on there, you got the drums and the vocals. So it's it's, it's a band, right? Yeah, but it caused me an immense difficulty. It oh. shouldn't have, but it did, mm. and it became very complicated because now the record company wanted a vocal album. Oh, okay. And I'm saying, wait, wait a minute, you know, this isn't going to happen. Because I just did not have my faith in myself as a singer. I'd been in the church choir and that kind of thing and in the high school glee club, but never thought of myself as a soloist. And in hindsight, I'm sorry I didn't do more of it. Because a recent podcast I did, oh, two years ago, excuse me, not a podcast, an ASMR. Um, I did one of those and, and it went crazy. It went, we had a couple hundred thousand listeners. And oh, nice. I, one of the, yeah, one of the guys phoned in and he said, you know, this is working well for you because of your voice. Yeah. And I thought it was putting everybody to sleep, by the way, which is why they were listening to it. <laughs> but I thought, well, there is a uniqueness to that voice. And it, it's a shame I didn't capitalize on it, but I didn't know it at the time. And, and, and music was my outlet. So yeah. we did the vocal album and it didn't go anywhere, which I predicted. However, uh, the next album after that had music box on it. So. Well, there you go. But you make a good point overall because some of the, the most popular songs aren't by the greatest singers. I mean, I wouldn't consider someone like, say, Willie Nelson a great singer, but he has Correct. a flavor that people just relate to. Well, you touch on it there. I'm a little harder than you are. I think most rock singers are not great singers. There you um, go. Yeah. But their expression. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Gordy Lightfoot, who became a friend of mine. I mean, Gordon and I used to, I used to say to him all the time, Gordon, how do you do this? You know, and <laughs> he knew that I knew uh, he had taken a lot of vocal lessons and he was always at the vocal trainer's guy. He had a yeah. vocal trainer and uh, he was always doing it and re-recording lines in the songs and, and then there's these songs that were monumental and historically fabulous songs. You know, everybody yeah. wrote was, he was a poet. Yeah. And, but it doesn't matter how bad your voice was, his poetry was so good. Well, and, and the I flavor. Listened to, oh, it's I listened to the flavor. record, the Edmund Fitzgerald, probably daily. Yeah. And, and I'm still, I remember asking him, how did you come up with that line? Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Yeah. Brilliant. And he said, well, I was stuck between the last line and the line before it. So I had to fill it up with something. Wow. I said, you are kidding me. He said, well, maybe a little bit, but he said, I worked <laughs> at it. <laughs> and I well, read I, the paper. <laughs> it, yeah. Cause I play acoustic gigs all the time. And Gordon Lightfoot is my favorite singer songwriter guitar right. player i mean i just love his 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 power and what he writes and i guess he oh. was one of those guys that went into his room and locked the door and just kind of did the mad scientist thing and then came out with this brilliant stuff i don't know because when i asked him how he came up with the wreck and he yeah. said oh, i was just reading the papers yeah and i think he was honest yeah i, thought, I sing oh, that one all the time i sing that song all the time and i bet you do it. and it is my favorite song of all songs of course i'm a boater and i've yeah. Captain my own boat for a long time and lived in the Bahamas for 20 years. Yes, I did see you wrote a book about that and traveled yeah. with Morley, right? Yeah. I got to get that off to you. Yeah. <laughs> You'd like love, it. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing is about Gordon Lightfoot, too, let's just digress into songwriting here a little bit. I mean, there's yeah. no there's no chorus, there's no bridge, there's nothing. He sings the same line 28 times. 
Oh yeah, basically the yeah, same yeah. melody. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's it, well, it's it's a dirge. It's you know? unbelievably strong. It's like I, I, I play it and I'm shocked. Yeah, it's it is. It, absolutely. And I and when I play it, the response is shocking to me. One of my of, favorite instruments is the bagpipes. Hmm. Now the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald could have been paid on the bagpipes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I'm not yeah. being funny, really. I'm just saying <laughs> it, 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 the droning on of yeah. the, the line go, that's yeah. repeated and repeated Absolutely. is like the drones of a bagpipe, which I played. <laughs> I played pipes for a while. Oh, did you? Yeah. But that's a long other story that cost me my first marriage, so we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> the bagpipes. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I yeah. love them. Oh, oh do you? yeah. Well, I, I they have a we played with the pipe band out here, the Delta Pipe Band. When they came, when Paul McCartney came, they wanted to do Mall of Kintyre, so they got the Delta Pipe Band out here in BC right. to go to yeah. the BC place and play with Paul McCartney. So super. Well, good for you. And and so other instruments, you, piano was your main instrument. You didn't play anything else other than the bagpipes. Actually, trombone became my major course, instrument. Yeah, there, there when I went into McGill, uh, Dr. Anhold said to me, well, you forget the trombone. You don't want to play with that anymore. You, I'll give you the course. <laughs> You've got yeah. your first credit. Yeah, so, a, you know. And then yeah. you worked for, is it right? Do I read here? You worked as a pianist for CBC television for a while? We had a program, it saved my bacon, to be honest with you. We had oh, okay. a program between uh, Love Me, Love Me, Love and Music Box. There were about eight right. years there that were, I was, I actually got my cab driver's license living in Toronto at that time and never drove the cab. It, it never, I was just about to show up for work on a Monday morning and that, Previous Friday afternoon, Dave Watts in Ottawa phoned me and said, you've got a monstrous hit with this funny little piano song on your hands. Oh. And oh. that was the end of the taxi driving. Huh. <laughs> Never That's got funny. into the cab. But, yeah. you know, there were a lot of things I was doing to try and keep two, uh, money on the table. I was married with three kids at the time. Well, there and, you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, let me see. Well, there was a taxi. I was also a, a secretary treasurer of a small municipality in Quebec where I lived mm. for a short time up in Lac Tremblant. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was uh, this program called Sunday Brunch, which, thank God, saved my bacon. It was a weekly show on CBC for two years. And, uh, and I played piano on Sunday. And, and uh, Wayne Grigsby, who's a great writer, was a, I guess that's how he made his money in, in his life. He was a wonderful journalist and yeah. uh, and he invited me to he said look so we just want somebody to come on and, and play these intros and extras off the you know when we go to yeah. commercial and that type of thing and i said well let's give it a whirl i'll do my best and he, he, they loved it so oh, good. i got my first one-year contract with them and that was a gift from heaven let me yeah tell you. and so what year would that have been that would have been around uh let's see music box would have been 19 uh, i wrote it in 73 so it would have been around 73 74 yeah. well i was curious about that because i you had a record deal with polydor right you did poor little fool in 72 and i would assume that, was that the you vocal were, album yeah so but you were were you not touring and doing some concerts and and that sort of thing no too? not really i, I was scared oh. stiff of the stage oh, oh God, okay no, that wouldn't have happened um, yeah nothing really after the bells i sort of thought well that's the end of my rock career and my you know, I wasn't doing any vocals with them anyway, but at least that right. was the closest to vocal oh, music okay. I was getting other than my own hit with Love Me Love, right? which I regarded as a fluke. Right. And well, yeah, I guess the assumption is you got a record deal, you you got a song that's doing something on the charts, and you're out there banging away, making some money. Well, that's a funny story. I mean, I really avoided, I don't know why, 
I just uh, I did a lot of television stuff that was quick and easy. Yeah. But getting in front of a big audience didn't really happen until uh, Dave Watts again at CFRA Radio in Ottawa in 1978 when Music Box started to hit the charts. Uh, and Dave phoned me on that Friday before I gave up my cab driver's license yeah. and said that I had a hit on my hands. Well, he phoned me about two months later, and he said, uh, Pepsi-Cola want to do a, a show with you, uh, sort of a, an afternoon in the park on the summer. Uh, that was in the summer. Would have been the summer of 1978, and Music Box was starting to catch on big time. And he said, you know, there'll be free hot dogs and burgers for the kids and that kind of thing and uh, it was to be at Mooney's Bay which is a beautiful little outdoor amphitheater on the uh, Ottawa River and it's just like a little sugar bowl there you know it's like the Hollywood bowl but one-tenth of the size mm. <laughs> and uh, he said you just get on the piano there on the stage and we'll, we'll you know have some lights and it's just a casual thing so don't even worry about getting dressed come in your jeans and everybody will be in the party move well I don't know what happened, but I, I was living in Montreal at the time, and I drove to Ottawa uh, that morning to do the concert. I think it started at 2 in the afternoon. It's a two-hour drive from Montreal, so I left around 10, I guess, and uh, thought I'd give myself some time. I had this old Pontiac station, which actually nearly didn't make it, a station wagon, but um, I got into traffic in Ottawa, and I'm getting sort of about two miles from Mooney's Bay, and... Uh, I'm really in deep traffic, and I'm wondering, you know, am I going to make it on time? I'd allowed a lot of time to get there, but I'm stuck, and we're not going anywhere. And I sort of shouted to the guy in the next car, rolled down my window, and said, hey, buddy, you know, is, is there something going on with the traffic here in Ottawa? And he said to me, oh, I don't know. There's some guy named Frank Mills doing a concert up at Moody's Bay. It's, been, <laughs> it's hard to get through. You, you might make it. That's great. Uh, yeah, so your own traffic the, jam. Exactly. That, and that was the first time I real. oh, God, I thought to myself, this is totally out of control. And that was the first concert that I played, sort of Frank Mills on his own, playing his own music. Gee. And so wow. I said to Dave, what do you want me to play? Music box dancer 10 times? You know, yeah. I really, I didn't have a concert organized. Oh, okay. He hadn't given me more than a week to do it. Yeah. And I'd never done a solo gig. Uh, oh, I mean, wow. I played in Hollywood, what the... Uh, Holiday Inns and all the done all that circuit, but nothing ever, you know. And and five thousand people showed Jeez. up to that concert wow. in Ottawa. Yeah. So what did you do? I don't know. I, oh God, I had a heart attack first of all, and then after I recovered, oh, I went on and I played all the stuff we, we just talked about, you know, Ray yeah. Charles and everything yeah. I could think of. I played, and then I'd throw a few notes of music box in, it and the audience would go crazy, and then yeah. we played something else. Well, yeah, you had enough chops to pull something out, right? I mean, you could play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. It's very astute of you. That's what I had to do. <laughs> well, the curious thing I have to, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but I mean, to get an instrumental that becomes a hit song, and, and you know, I was a rock guy. I was a teenager in the 70s, but, you know, yeah. we'd, we'd listen to all the rock songs and stuff, but we listened to Music Box Dancer too. Like, what is the magic of that? Like, it's it's a melody, it's a piano player which is, is really, you know, been done a thousand times or more, but that song, there's some magic there. What is that? I think it's a, a combination of, of several things. Um, first of all, the disco era was just ending. And that's all you heard anywhere at that time was disco music, you know, dancing girl and all that stuff. And, and um, I think, first of all, it was a, an abrupt and blatant change from what was being played on the radio at that time. Mm -hmm. 
so, and there were a lot of housewives who'd been starved for music because you can only go through the Dancing Queen several times and then you've done it. Yeah. And a lot of that music was so repetitive that you got tired of that too. Yeah. And along came Music Box, which was so repetitive it drove most people crazy, but they <laughs> kept listening to it. And uh, that's being a bit facetious. But I think one guy described it as being arguably one of the most memorable pieces of music that's ever been written. Now, that was a hell of a compliment, but there's a bit of truth to that. It's uh, it's so simple. It's all arpeggio. It starts off with a question and answers it. And yeah. then it, I, the biggest part I, the problem I had writing that piece was getting the chorus where it goes into the... Uh, that that yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was fall in 1973 when I started writing the piece. And I didn't finish it until 1974 when I just sat down. It was one of those beautiful spring days in Montreal in March. And I sat down at the piano and just played it right through. And I thought, that's mm. it. Yeah. It's done. And that's what happened. And then about three weeks, three months later, we released it and uh, the rest was history. Yeah, it's, it's, it is amazing though. I've ne- I, I mean, there's no answer to it, but I always ask the question because you're looking for that magical formula of, of notes and melody and lift and question answer, whatever it happens to be. And you know it when you find it. But if I said, well, go and find it, it it's hard to do. I never analyzed what I was doing. in in depth in any way. I just felt if it's going to happen, it's got to be the free me. It can't be concocted and it isn't concocted. Mick Jagger does his thing because Mick Jagger does his thing. And uh, it might be argued that, yeah, he spent his 10,000 hours or whatever that book is all about. (laughs) Paul McCartney, the same story. The guy writes because he's right, but he's a great writer and he's, he's very much in tune with the popular you know, he could you could write Mother Goose rhymes and he'd make them hits out of it. Right. So Penny Lane's a typical example of that. You know, yeah. Marvelous writing. He and, yeah. of course, unfortunately, Lennon, who got cut off in his youth. But yeah. um, I think that Music Box, it was also had no generic to it. Little children. I got mobbed in Tokyo at the airport by, yeah. by five-year-olds. <laughs> there you go. Waving Canadian flags. It was marvelous. Yeah. At the same so, time, I can go into any old age, old folks' home anywhere, and they'll all know it. See, that's the thing, and that that's the trick. It's it's multi genre, multi generational. It just got it. It just came in between all this other stuff. Like the hard rock was making a comeback. The disco was on its way out. You still had your Motown guys around. Like there was still a ton of stuff out there, and all of a sudden, all through all that comes this thing that comes up in the middle of it, and it went to number one on one of the country and western charts down in. Alabama. Incredible. Just yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, and then, so I read here too, you had a good record deal. Like, like you're one of the rare people I, I've interviewed so many people who, you know, when I usually ask the question, were you ever taken advantage of or mistreated in some way? And then of course you, you don't have to talk for the next 20 minutes because you hear all the stories and you were one of those people that got around that. You didn't get taken advantage of, or you had a good record deal. My father was a good businessman, and he always okay. wanted me to go into business. He, he really didn't. He said, yeah, music's lovely, but you'll never make any money at it. It only took two payments from BMI while I was with the Bells, and they recorded three of my songs. And I thought, you know, mm. if I can get enough songs out there being played around the world, money won't be an issue, and it's not an issue to begin with, but it won't right. be an issue ever again. Yeah. And that's what happened. I, I never, ever tried to concoct my music. 
And whenever I tried to do that, it failed miserably, which the yeah. vocal thing was. Now, uh, one little experience with a guy named Mac David, who was a wonder, he was the, the brother of Hal David, the great songwriter with Burt Bacharach. And Mac was an excellent composer in his own right. He wrote the, uh, he was a lyricist, and he wrote the lyrics to Gone with the Wind, uh, a, a lot of the big Disney pieces. <laughs> How do you come up with a piece like Salamagula, Bichagula, Bibbidi, Bobbidi, Boo? He wrote that. <laughs> you got to be half nuts. And he was. And I went and spent a month with him writing that at oh, this wow. place in Palm Springs in, in Nevada, is it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we had a great time together. He's a lovely guy. And unfortunately, yeah. a few years later, he died. And we, we were supposed to get together to do an album, but it didn't happen. And uh, so he was one of the guys that influenced me to the extent that uh, he always used to say, don't concoct your music, it won't work. It's got to be feeling. Yeah. And it was. Yeah, and, and you had a good I genuinely felt music box. You yeah. know, I was happy at the time I yeah. wrote it. My kids then, loved so, it. They were, you know, they were jumping up and down to it. So I knew I had something going. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and uh, But but the record deal, like back in that day, you know, the, the idea was, okay, young man, you sit down, you sign here, we'll make you a star. And then they basically take all the rights to your songs and you make virtually nothing out of it. I mean, that story has been repeated over and over again. You, you got around that. Well, knowing business, again, it's the first BMI statements that came in were way higher than I thought they were going to be. Okay. And yeah. uh, so that was one avenue where I knew if I could write music, I'd make some money at it. To be honest, Dan, the, the biggest reason nobody wanted my music. Okay. <laughs> so I ended up owning it myself and publishing it myself. Ah. I still publish it to this day. Oh, well, good and for no, you. Yeah. yeah, nobody wanted it. They, they just, what are we going to do with this piano music? You, you know, right. what, what are we going to do with it? Yeah. Nobody makes a living playing piano in a big way. Uh, a few people do, but yeah. there are exceptions, you know. Yeah, and you're one and of I them. Went to bar, <laughs> I went to bar circuit and, and Holiday Inn and all that. Yeah. And, you know, that was 200 bucks a week if you were lucky back yeah, then. Yeah, there you go. And I thought, that ain't going to cut it. Yeah. So my dad had always said, you know, all right, well, if you're going to go into business, he says, it's pretty simple. You buy apples at six cents and you sell them for eight and you better yeah. make enough money to pay for it in the middle. And and that was his simplistic way of telling me what new business was all about. Now, if you expand on that, you, you're eventually running General Motors on the same principle. <laughs> I guess, right? The principles are, the, are the, the underlying principles are the same, but I guess it was a blessing in disguise for you, the fact that, that no one was clamoring to uh, to publish your tunes and take all the rights huh, to your songs. God, no. I remember Jerry Renowich at uh, Chapel Music in Canada. Nice guy. We had a lot of friendly lunches together, and he really was a, a very nice fellow. Um, died young of a heart attack. But Jerry said to me, you know, this this song you've got, Music Box Dancer, he said, I don't know about it. We, we've got it. You're under contract to us with it. And he said, um, there's a 25,000 song limit to it. He said, I don't think we're going to get that far. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I said to him, well, how many do you think you're going to sell? He said, I think we'll be lucky if we sell 10,000 copies. Mm. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I do. You gave me an advance of $5,000. I said, I'll give you back the $5,000 if you just give me the rights and I'll deal with it myself. And very unwisely, I think it was the worst decision Jerry ever well, made. He, he took the deal. He took the deal. And I ended up controlling Music Box 100% with its print rights. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's and fantastic. You must have sold over 5 million copies. <laughs> that's know. great. You know, yeah. I'm happy to hear that because I've heard the opposite story so many times. Well, yeah, but the music business, I don't even know to this day if they're managers like, who is Colonel Parker who managed yeah. Elvis? I mean, yeah. they got total crook. 
Well, and and yeah. most of these guys were crooks. They, yeah. they, there was no limits to, nobody knew the business to begin with. No. You'd go into a lawyer if there was a, a, an argument about royalties or something, and you might as well be talking to a brick wall. Nobody well, knew. There were no music lawyers. Well, and no, and, and uh, this business of music, which I bought and yeah, read, yeah. and that was the Bible to anybody who didn't really want to get too involved with the law and still be in the music business. Well, yeah, and uh, well, I read Tommy James' book. I mean, his his record company was a gangster, so he he just wouldn't pay him, and he was exactly. too scared to ask for the money. <laughs> yeah, there was all of that. You know, that, I I didn't have that problem because I was very careful about who I did business with. Good, yeah. Yeah. If there's a good person there, um, he's going to go in my books before the guy who isn't a good person. Mm -hmm. So it's that simple. Yeah. 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 No, good. And then, and then, so you did, uh, so I watched Kitty on the Keys and Peter oh, Piper God. and some of the other yeah. stuff. So what was the deal with the Kitty on the Keys? What you were trying to, so it sounds like to me, like the record companies, a good friend of mine was a quite a well-known artist and he wrote a song that was a semi hit and the record company said, I want 10 more songs just like that. We, we got to sell these. And so you, were you trying to emulate Music Box and try to recreate that in, in a different way? I'll try and make a, a, a long story short. At the time when Music Box was making me awards up at the Juno Award Ceremonies, Pierre Trudeau used to come to those awards all the time. Oh, yeah. And there was this blonde guitarist who used to play guitar here, there, and everywhere, Leona Boyd. And Leona, nice lady. Um, yeah. She said to me, she called me one day and she said, well, I play guitar. And I never thought she was a Segovia, but on the other hand, she, she played a decent guitar. And she said, I've written a song called the Bellbird Song, and uh, I'd like you to consider recording it. And she wanted the publishing for it. And I said, that's fine. That's fair. So uh, I called her back later on. And I said, I, I think I've rearranged it a bit for piano, made it a bit more music box dancer-like, which is what she wanted, of course. Yeah. And I said to her, however, you know, uh, I'd like to change the title to Kitty on the Keys because the Bell Bird song doesn't seem to ring a bell with me. Okay. She didn't, she didn't come up with a better answer, so we call it Kitty on the Keys. Well, then uh, the next thing was the video and the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, it's cute. <laughs> it, it got some airplay, but how do you duplicate Music Box Dance? Well, that's the problem, right? You don't. How yeah, do you, you best don't. your best? Because that's what they yeah. want you to do, right? Oh, they wanted 10 or 20 of those. Yeah. That sure. was my downfall. With yeah. Actually, I had changed uh, Leonard Rambo, who managed Anne Murray and I at same time she was great we had used to get around in the office together in our yeah. time off nice. and um and she always said to me you know leonard would look after you pretty well which he did for 10 years but uh leonard always said you know it's just it's a difficult business right Can you? <laughs> yeah he said i i think um leona's has got you by <laughs> the whatever yeah and, and well, it's not it didn't work so yeah well then i listened to peter piper that's another piano classic nice feel yeah. but it's very orchestrated right you got strings in there i can hear the cello and, and there's a full band even you got a church organ in there i think at, at one point too right well now that you mentioned all that the song was originally called peter piper goes to church okay and it was the first complete song i wrote and oh. recorded yeah oh, and i was 18 when i wrote it Oh, neat. And played yeah. it for my little nephew, Ted, who's now 62 and lives in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And he'd jump up and down to it, you know, in his jolly jumper. And um, 
I there was because of the organ solo in the middle. It was just originally called Peter Piper, and I thought, oh, let's just put goes to church for the organ yeah. thing. Yeah, and that did reasonably well as a follow up to Music Box. But ironically, yeah. nobody ever knew. I don't think that it was written many years long before Music Box. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, because it sounds again you're trying to emulate that. That's your style, and that's the way you play, right? And so well, I'm always you said they want ten more, you know. Well, sure, and yeah. and that's your signature sound, so it has to yeah, be sort of a jump off of that, right? Yeah, Leonard had uh, Leonard Rambo again had said to me, you know, the record company, and I left Polydor. I went to EMI, and all they just wanted another hit, you know. Yeah, that's and that's not the way I like to write. I think yeah. the woman who's done most in that ilk is Sarah McLaughlin. Hmm. She does what she wants to do, and if you want another album, you may have to wait five years for it. But yeah. when it comes out, it's a dandy. Yeah, and uh, I've always admired her for that. She's told the record company to stick it. I think. And, <laughs> Well, that's yeah, always the, the rub. I mean, artists create because they're artists, but they, you exactly. know, the record company wants to cut it, wrap it, freeze it. Let's get it out here. Let's do the promos. And well, that's the system. Now it's yeah. changed, of course, now because a lot of the big music is owned by the major corporations again, yeah. al along with everything. <laughs> hmm. What yeah. does an Apple own now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, that's true. So I have to ask you about your connection with Rita McNeil. Were you guys friends or was that uh, sort of happenstance? Not really. Um, Leonard Rambo, as I said, managed me for 10 years. He was I loved Leonard. He, he died of stomach cancer as a mm. young man in his 40s. And wow. he managed Anne and I. I say that because I was lucky to be in that camp with her. She was long with Leonard before Superstar. I came along. Yeah. yeah. And Leonard was born in, in Tignish, Nova Scotia. So he had his roots with Nova Scotia, and as Anne okay. did. Yeah, and uh, everybody in the business at that time was Nova Scotia bound. You know, it was the place where new music was. Other than Toronto, it was the second scene for music. Montreal music was all French, which was fine, yeah. but uh, it, it wasn't cutting it in the English market. So uh, Leonard knew of all the artists very well, and it was his idea later on to. He said, "You know, you and Rita should get together." Well, that didn't happen until I Leonard passed, and I ended up with a fellow named. Uh, Brian Edwards from Rockland's talent. And yeah. he just got awarded the Country Music Hall of Fame for his work in country oh, music. Nice. But uh, he said to me, you and Rita, I know Leonard had mentioned this to you years ago. He said, I'd like you to do a concert with Rita. And I said, well, make me an offer I can't refuse. And he did. And we did 10 concerts oh, nice. together. Yeah. And that was as simple as that. Yeah. And the Christmas ones, right? The Christmas one was fun. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a song which I felt was very disappointed in its lack of success called Whatever Happened to Christmas. And it's written in a sort of a, I don't know, a jazz or New Orleans gospel type song. Sure. I was very disappointed because I think it summed up the situation with me, with Christmas today. You know, yeah. it's all about its presence. <laughs> yeah, the, the Bible's been forgotten. Yes. And that's your own personal taste. But uh, I was... Yeah brought up in a very christian house well yeah and, and that's uh, that's my tradition as well i'm a i'm mm -hmm. a, an outwardly christian and uh, i went to baptist seminary for five years actually and did a master wow. of divinity it's one of the things oh that I how wonderful so, i uh, envy you yeah it was one of the best experiences of my life so i bet i'm with you there yeah i like to go on a retreat that's always been one of my favorite things to do it's my bucket list <laughs> yeah very nice one of the things that i saw on your website that really touched my heart was your piano fun 
to help people play along with your music. And and what right. really touched me there is like my mom was a classical pianist, but she grew up in the forties and fifties when the, the teachers were very strict and they'd hit your knuckles with the ruler and, and, and sort right. of yell at you. I had one of those. Did you? Yeah. And, and my daughter took piano lessons and she came home one day from her piano lesson crying. And I, and I drove right back to the teacher and I said, my daughter came home from piano crying. And she goes, well, she didn't practice her scales. And I said, but you're missing the point. You're supposed to make she, it fun and make her happy with the music. She, she doesn't yeah. want to even play now. Yeah, she didn't get it. <clears throat> she, she missed it. So you, you got it though the, in your piano fun is what you called it, which I thought that was perfect. And then you explain how you play along and have fun with it. So tell me how that came about. Well, I had always been toying around with music. I think I was one of the first guys to more or less create my own playlist when the only tool you had was a record player and a, a lousy recorder. <laughs> they didn't yeah. make good ones back in the 50s. Yeah. And I always made my own list of hits. And I could only do this by recording what I heard on the radio, all of yeah. it very illegal. Yeah, we all, well, that's the only way to get the song so you could hear them. And I thought, someday we're going to have a system where you can just pick up the phone and dial whatever song you want and it'll be there, Yeah, which we have today. You know, it's it's amazing. Now, they're not paying you anything to do it, but anyway, yeah. that's another yeah, right, story. Yeah. But that's how that started. Now, when I got into the orchestral thing, um, I realized that karaoke had just started to catch on. And I call what I do instrumental karaoke. Yeah. Um, so I took a lot of the, the, being the owner of my charts and everything else in my life, as far as music goes, I took the orchestral pieces that we had, took the piano off them yeah. and said, this will be fun. Kids at home can play with an orchestra. And that's how Piano Fun came along. And I ended up using it myself. The, the last 20 concerts I did in my life were done to pre-recorded music tracks as the orchestra. Oh, yeah, well, very cool. And that gave me the ability to recreate every song I wrote, barring the choir who weren't with me, yeah. to sound exactly the same way as it did on an album. Yeah, and then the second CD, so it was, it was like the old Music Minus One, I don't know if you ever saw those. Right oh, there. sure, that's how that started. Yeah. That's a funny story. <laughs> tell, tell me, yeah. tell me. We were in the recording studio. Hayward Parrott and I have been friends for years. He's probably one of Canada's best recording engineers and uh, at this point. And uh, I was recording with him one night. I don't remember exactly what session it was, but it was in the evening. And he said to me, do you mind if we bump your session an hour? He said, I've got this Italian opera singer coming in with a, a minus one record. And he wants to do a couple of songs and record them for his own use. Yeah, I said sure. So we sat there while he recorded. We didn't get two bars into this guy, and it, sadly, he had no sense of counting and rhythm oh. whatsoever. Ah. So Hayward said, "Do you mind going in with a baton and conducting him?" That's how he's used <laughs> to doing this. I said, "No, give me a baton." <laughs> it was the first time I'd seen one. But anyway, oh, and I went to whatever the poor man's name was, and I said, "No, Sergio, you and I got to get together on this." Yeah. So um, we boot up the Minus One record, which is a beautiful rendition, probably done by the Concertabau from the Amsterdam Orchestra, you know. And yeah. he's, he's singing his heart out to this thing, and oh, solo mio or something. And I'm just about hitting him on the head with the baton so he'll stay in tempo. And we actually pulled it off, and we got wow. his song recorded. He was thrilled. Yeah, and so uh, that's where the minus one thing first clicked okay. in. I could, I can do this, but that's a yeah. long time before 
you know, synthesizers. It's a long time yes. before a yeah. sophisticated 20, 48 track recording and all. And that was 150. Yeah, it's right. limitless track recording. There you go. Yeah. So I should just say for our listeners who they don't know music minus one, they would take a recording and they'd take out whatever instrument you wanted to play. So if you're a trumpet player, you could get the, the song without the trumpet or the vocalist, you could get the song without the vocal. So you could add it and play with that band. That's what the idea And particularly was. for guys in concert, you know, they, <clears throat> they, they couldn't hire the, the New York Philharmonic right. to practice with. So yeah. they'd get a recording and practice to that. Yeah, That's exactly very, right, Dan. Very nice. No, that was good. So your your piano fun, I thought, was was excellent. And you got the oh, spirit you. of it. And and again, you're balancing the, the, the classical training, maybe the jazz training, whatever you took, with the feel and the playing and the fun part of it. That's the balance that needs to be struck. And I think you strike it perfectly. So... Oh, thank you kindly. Yeah, we sold a ton of them on concert tour. Oh, good. But strangely yeah. enough, I would have thought more piano players, but they, they've all gone to uh, machines now, uh, electronics and, and oh, synths yeah. and all it's the rest a, of it. And that's a different fine. world now. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. I, when I first started doing these podcasts a few years ago, I would sometimes ask people, how has the music business changed over the last 50 years? And they'd usually just start laughing. And then yeah. <laughs> it's like, Mid- well, midi madness, we used to call it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> 16 synthesizers synthesizers hooked up in a row yeah and, and they're all playing something different you know yeah. one makes a mistake and you gotta find out which one it is <laughs> oh it was just horrific oh man yeah and then <laughs> you were part of the uh, tears are not enough in 85 too right yes that you, was an honor how was that yeah. It was marvelous. I was standing next to Neil Young and all sorts oh, of some of the greats, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget Neil's line. David David Foster was doing the session. Right. And Hayward was the recording engineer. And David was sitting there as the producer. And Neil walked in. He, did, he was given the first line to sing, and I forget what it was, uh, for Tears Are Not Enough. And, and Neil sung it and then he left the studio and walked into the recording room the producer's room and the and where the the, the they had a 48 track neve at the time and david said to him uh, neil uh, uh, do you mind we'd just like to do re- redo that third line a little bit or first line or four whatever the, this the phrase was that he had done and just like to do it a couple of times and, and just knock you up a little bit on pitch and neil <laughs> looked at david and he said man that's the gig. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he walked out. <laughs> that was yeah. the end of it. <laughs> well, Neil was a superstar at that point. Oh, so God, hilarious guy yeah. too. Just That's so good. funny. Oh, good. Well, it's cracked up. <laughs> yeah. And they kept it in, obviously. Obviously, yeah, yeah. It's really weird. It. So did the CanCon regulations, when they came in, did that help you? Or were you in favor of CanCon? Or were you, did you have an opinion on that? I was, and I, I still am in a, in, in a non-legalistic way. Sometimes, and, and it's changed. Canadians have become more musical, I think, in their youth, as, as my peers were in their youth, to the extent that the Canadian, being a neighbor of America, it was far too easy to replicate what was going on in America. And I think as a result, a lot of Canadian artists weren't getting the play they deserved. Right. And yes, I was aware of it. Yes, I took advantage of it. Yes, okay. it was a success for me. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea where the status is of it now. Uh, I'm always very aware of government's involvement in anything. So yeah. in my case, it worked well. It's a good question you asked, and I still would, would support it. I think it's it, Canada's in a rough spot being a neighbor to such a huge yeah. and economically 
powerful country. Well, the case that I heard was with Windsor, Detroit, right? That that yeah, right. anything yes. that was played in Detroit had to be played in Windsor. And if you didn't have CanCon, you wouldn't have had those. And then they spilled over the other way because there was great Canadian music that spilled into the States because of the CanCon regulations. Well, I took, I remember taking Music Box into a couple of uh, music stores even in Detroit. And the guy just looked at me and said, man, we don't play that kind of music here. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> I left. There you go. <laughs> that was the way yeah. it was. Jeez. Well, so now it's it's sort of the Wild West now with the internet and stuff, right? CanCon is not as uh, significant as it was. I guess it came in uh, 73 or early 70s. It was implemented, but it really, what effect does it have now other than Canadian radio, which is in decline? I don't know. And, and in yeah. fact, I, I'm very worried about the business because as I said, I think it's, uh, and I ran into this in Ottawa recently, only recently, and uh, I think Bell Canada now owns a large portion of, of the music that's being released mm. in Canada. Right. And uh, I'm not so sure that's a good thing. Uh, Taylor Swift would not exist without, is it General Motors who owns her or somebody yeah, else? Yeah, I don't know, but uh, but you're <laughs> you right. Know? It's just become more corporate now. And, and How do you compete yeah. with that? Yeah. yeah and then really they're up on a stage now where if you want to go and see a Taylor Swift concert, you got to pay $10,000 for it's a ticket. Crazy. Hello, pardon me? What? Crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And that's the result of that. Now, yeah. the internet, of course, has done the same thing. As marvelous as it is, the downside for us musical people was that I probably made more money at two cents per cut for mechanicals and six cents per play on the radio that I'm making now for a million plays around the world. Right. Because yes. Apple's got it and they're going to pay me 0. 0.0001 cent Ridiculous. every time I play one yeah. of my songs. Yeah, and, that's and that's right. the problem now too because there's yeah. not as much money in it as there was back then for the but, average musician. Yeah. Taylor's doing very well by this, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that's, she and that's only three other people are, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But did you see, um, I think it was Peter Frampton who testified before a congressional hearing and right. was talking about, he got millions of streams and got a check for $1,200 or something or 17. I don't quote me on the numbers, but it was just oh, that's probably right. Ridiculous. Yeah. And, and absolutely. he said, this, this can't be, you know, like, so well, it is. Yeah. So in, in terms of your career, were you, were you ever considered a one-hit wonder just because you had the song that was so big and then the rest of them weren't as big? I mean, you had other songs that people knew about, but sometimes you get labeled yeah. because you have that sort of... That's a good question. That label doesn't bother me because, uh, let's face it, Music Box was such an exception. Yeah. It's... If it had been a half-assed hit, yeah. so be it. Yeah. I would have been a one-hit wonder. Mm -hmm. But this thing was so massive that it overshadows love me, love me, love. You, yeah. you don't, most people don't even know about love me, love. And then they do nothing about my involvement with the bells, which is where I got my first gold right. record, believe it or not. There you go. Yeah. Very few people <clears throat> know about that gold record. Yeah. So when I look back on my life in music, I say, well, I had three hits, you know, yeah. <laughs> they were all in the same barnyard, but who cares? They yeah. were three there hits. There you go. Yeah. So that's my answer yeah. to that question. Yeah. But I no. think, it, again, it's very hard for, for a person who, who wrote a musical, like an instrumental piece that, that actually, they only played it on the rock charts because they had to. Yeah. <laughs> People with, you know, the phones were locked oh, yeah. out at night when they played it. And Absolutely. I just yeah. remember hearing from the promoters of the, of the, from the music company and they say, oh God, we're trying to get, I get, forget what the big one, CK, what was it in, in Canada? It was the big station in Toronto, Rock. And you couldn't get on that station 
I don't think I, I, no, don't I know. Mention, I, know. I, just, I don't can't mention think the word payola, yeah. but back in yeah. those days, God knows what went on, and um, they finally had right. to play it because yeah. everybody else yeah. was playing it, and they had, go. Yeah. They the chum like was Fox it chum? <laughs> yeah, chum. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was the chum radio station. Chum, right. Yeah. Chum, yeah, the yeah. chum chain. So all across Canada, they were playing. Toronto was the last holdout. Yeah. And that's so, when I got my third general award, and I said to everybody, "What took you so long, Toronto?" You know. <laughs> well, that's yeah, and and you were so you're obviously well known in Canada, and that was what I was going to ask you about that too, the Canada versus the U.S. because it was a genuine hit in the U.S. as well. So, what about the U.S. Oh, market? You got you absolutely. got some accolades down there, and and did you tour down there much? Or I did all the major TV shows. Yeah, which was the only way I wanted to do it, perhaps. One of the biggest mistakes I made, we did do a couple of concerts on the border towns, like Bellingham, Washington. Yeah, I live and, about a half an hour from there. Yeah, well, we did sell out there to a concert. I think we could have played five nights and filled the place. Wow. And Brian Edwards, my, my agent, said, you know, do you want to do the States, as he said. And I yeah. said, well, what does it mean, Brian? Yeah. He said, well, a 90-day tour. And then another one, and then another one after that. <laughs> Three of those a year. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, money's one thing, but my life is another. Yeah. And I, and I only regret it once in a while when I see my neighbor fly in on his jet. <laughs> <laughs> but that's never been my aspiration. I fly my own little plane. It's a radio control thing. That I, yeah. I meet with go. the boys down at the, the pub downtown and we fly our little planes together. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's the thing, like to, to, to hit the U.S. market and then the touring and, and the record company you have to have and the money behind it. I talked to Ian Thomas about that. Like, you know, yeah, there wasn't overt payola, but you had to write some big checks to get those songs where they needed to be. Oh, yeah. Either that or, or, or fancy gifts, you know. That's... Yeah. You stayed living in Canada, but you ended up in Vermont. How did you end up in Vermont? I ended up going to the Bahamas. Okay, um, right. It, it, yeah. My lawyer, who was a partly... I met Mike in, in McGill, and we've been together with good friends. He only lives up the road from me here in Stowe. And, okay. Uh, he actually lives in Montreal, but they vacation down here on the weekends and stuff. And Mike said to me, you know, you're going to have a terrible tax bill for the next five years. And as a Canadian, if you move to the Bahamas, you won't be paying any tax. Right. And I thought about that. And there were, it, was, it was a big decision. So I packed up the family, and we moved to the Bahamas. And yeah, I think it really actually had a lot to do with my divorce and the end of my my first marriage which right, was a okay. sad event yeah and uh but in hindsight uh financially it worked out well i actually ended up living in the country for 20 years 20 years and then 20 your book, my travels with morley came out in 2010 right yeah it came out here in 2010 but it came out in the bahamas in the 90s okay yeah and then that and, was uh, the story of taking your sailboat and sailing around the that area Actually, I had a big power boat at the time. Oh, nice. I was a sailor originally when I was living in Canada. I had a Flying Dutchman, which was a fabulous sailboat. Yeah, and uh, I was still my heart is in the sail thing. But when I was in the Bahamas, I would only have about a week or two there when I was on a plane again. Okay. So if yeah. I wanted to go anywhere and see anything, I had to have a fast boat, which I ended up with. I had a beautiful boat down there for, for at least twelve of the years. A great fishing boat. I never bought fish while I lived there. Yeah. Nice. Went diving and enjoyed the life there, but uh, I missed the winter. And uh, strangely enough, but I, I was yeah. on the Canadian ski patrol. I skied probably every weekend of my life from the time yeah. I was nine years old till the yeah. time I was thirty. Yeah, and um, I loved it so much. When I went in the Bahamas, yeah. I started to miss it. And, yeah, uh, gosh, I thought, 
what's the alternative here? Well, I was dating a lady who lived in New York at the time, and she had a couple of boys who loved skiing. My kids all like skiing, the three of them. So we we would gather. Uh, I, I looked out in Vermont for a ski house that we could all easily get to, which mm. proved to be an oxymoron. But yeah. <laughs> um, the kids would fly in. They'd fly in from New York, and it worked out very well. We, we bought a house here in, in Stowe, a ski nice. town. Yeah, and uh, and that's how I'm here today because when oh, Brenda cool. I met and have been married 22 years now. Nice. So, did you ever get caught up in the celebrity lifestyle and the pitfalls and the the booze and drugs and self indulgence? Did you did you go through a phase of that? I'm a pretty disciplined guy. Uh, yeah, I never liked what alcohol did to me. Frankly, mm. it just turned me into a blithering idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and never went near the drug thing. I yeah, did smoke you. marijuana with the boys in the band one night, and I thought <laughs> oh, I'd sooner have a rum and coke. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, or a beer. And then living in the Bahamas, it was all rum, rum and coke, you know. So yeah, there you go. But when I when I got back to Vermont, here it's all beer. Yeah. And uh, by that time, I guess I was in my what sixties when we moved yeah, here. Right. And yeah. Just alcohol, that, that, that doesn't turn me on either. I, that, that doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, just the young guys, you know, it's it's mostly the young man's thing when they, the rock stars get in their 20s and 30s. They're just horror stories, as you probably know many of them and seen many of them. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, well, Gordon went through a rough stage, oh, yeah. too. You yes. know? I yeah. mean, it's a sad story. And, and God, he didn't yeah. look well at all for the last few years. No, and it's funny because he came to Vancouver, and he's he's my favorite guy. And I didn't even yeah. go and see him. It would have would have broke my heart to go and see yeah, him. Yeah, it would have. You sure. know, he, he was just uh, too frail at that point. So, looking back on your career, anything you'd change, anything you would have done differently if you could do it again? If I could do it again, I think I would have played around a little bit more with the vocal thing. Yeah, um, that's my only regret. Uh, Doing the concert tour thing in the States. Uh, now, you have to remember, I did a lot of touring in Europe. And yeah. Japan is, oh, believe nice. it or not, my second biggest market. Oh, wow. Yeah, always has been. That's great. And it went crazy. There was uh, Music Box was on the charts there for nine months. Jeez. Wow. And and uh, the crazy. original Music Box that I released was on the charts there for three months. Yeah. And then a Japanese girl sang lyrics to it, it was recorded, and it was on the charts for another three months. Wow. And then a girl in China recorded it in China, and in Japan, it went for another Unreal. three months. Yeah. That's great. So it was a publisher's dream. Well, for sure, you're getting paid on all that, and you got the rights all to that. the song, so you're good. Exactly. That's yeah, awesome. The whole thing has been very kind to Muggins. Yeah. Oh, that <laughs> makes me happy. It makes me happy Thank to hear you. that because I've heard it so many the opposite ways. So oh, many, yeah. You know. I, I Brian never managed me as such. He always booked me on concert tours and yeah. things in Canada chiefly. And uh, mm. I don't know, maybe I should have let him run with it, but I was always very wary of management in music. I well, thought I could always do it better than they could. So, And rightly so. I read John Fogarty's book, and I mean, the deal that he oh. signed, he signed away songs he hadn't even written yet. He promised them 160 songs, and he signed the bottom line. And he said, by the time we got through all the hit songs, I was at 37. So uh, I, how can you sign away songs you haven't even written yet? That I don't know. It's crazy. But Ken Tobias, who wrote uh, Stay a While, Yep. Sold it to the Righteous Brothers for a thousand dollars. But yeah, see that was the that was the exploited, you know, the suits as the old saying, the suits wrecked the music business. And it's true because yeah. they exploited oh, yeah. the musicians and the music. I, I had yeah. to say no many times when I was you, you know, do I say no to this guy or not? You know. Yeah. But I did and it worked well. 
Yeah, I was going to say, you've rubbed shoulders with lots of people over the years. And who was most impressive to you? Who who really stands out to you of all the people you've met and worked with and stuff? You mentioned Anne Murray to anybody else? Well, I don't like to mention anybody because my taste is so eclectic. There's no doubt probably the, the, the most vocal person I ever listened to is Gordon Lightfoot. Hmm. And uh, he's on all of my pop lists that I oh, have good. in my truck. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then um, by the same token, I like Seal, you know, a great writer and oh, singer. Beautiful. He gives him good stuff. Uh, that song Crazy is a magnificent piece Gorgeous. of work. Yeah. And the way it's produced is also a, a work of art. Yeah. The, the the piano chart in that, or should I say the synth chart in that, the guy who plays it, it's just magnificent. And then the next minute or not, I'm playing Bach, Staccata, and Fugue on the little synthesizer that sounds like an <laughs> organ upstairs. Yeah. So yeah. I don't really have any no, great regrets yeah. at all. Yeah. Very fortunate. I've had a good life. Yeah. It's had its moments, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's a, but it's, it's, well, it's funny. a great ending. It's the icing on the cake, I think. Yeah, so good. Yeah. You know, Dan, it's a funny thing. The, the we sort of are what we are. There's a great line, I think, from the song um, Nights in White Satin. And he says, you will be what you want to be. I think it's a great piece of music. Yeah. And, uh, it's so simple. <laughs> yeah. But the, the lyrics are simple. And, but it's a feeling we've all gone through once, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Or twice. I just like the adventure of life and knowing that you get to steer your own ship, so to speak. Right? Yeah. And that's you, the, you are what you want to be. And, and I, I read one of the books I always really liked and I read and followed some of it was called Psycho-Cybernetics. Hmm. And it's a theory that says uh, guided missiles work not by where they are going to, but where they're going wrong. In other words, if they're off course, they check it. And right. <laughs> that's how they finally end up hitting the church in England. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and this fellow who was a psychiatrist wrote it and he said, let your brain do the work. Yeah. If you're starting out music, write down every little thing that means something to you in music every day. Hmm. And especially, he said, concerts and really solid events in music. We're don't, not, not interested in you playing the pan flute to the sheet. We, what we yeah. want to know is how many concerts did you do that year? Or, and yeah. I looked back at my book, and I did this for about eight years. Uh, I entered, you know, the, the first year there were maybe two television shows and the second year there were four television shows six holiday in gigs and the fourth year maybe sunday brunch on the cbc hmm. and it just got bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger and finally blew up nice and so my advice to kids in the business is get out there play your stuff listen to what people say about it yeah. they're gonna buy it not you <laughs> yeah that's yeah exactly and you got to be a bit flexible. Yep. I don't think it's plagiarism. I just think it makes common sense. If you want the, the mobs to get to you, you got to know how to address it. Yeah. And so I really like kids in music, and I think they're courageous of all, especially these days. Get out there and play yeah. your songs, and you're going to find out pretty soon who likes them and who doesn't like what. <laughs> there you go, yeah. And so what have you got left to do? Have you got a, a bucket list? Are you still active, or you, what do you do from day to day? <laughs> to be honest with you, I've met so many great people. I've had such an amazing career. Yes. Uh, 
quietly so, you know. Nobody knows who I am when I'm buttering <laughs> around or anything. They don't. And then once in a while, I'll be in the supermarket and some lady will be whistling it or humming it, you know. Yeah, she's you going go. down the aisle and I want to go and tap her on the shoulder and say, hey, I wrote that. You know? yeah, exactly. So last week, That's I went funny. in to change my uh, – I have a power washer to wash my truck with and it broke down. So I went to the little store where I bought it and uh, – Mike's the guy. Mike owns the store and runs it. Nice fellow. And he says to me, "Oh, listen, I'm just got to disappear for a minute. My wife will take care of your your new your new power washer." And and she's writing up the bill. And she looks and she says, "Frank Mills, you play the piano." <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it starts. That's you see, funny. I've but dabbled that in it once or twice. Often anymore. <laughs> I that's said, funny. "Yeah, I do." Yeah, and she said. You didn't do it, right? That little tinkly piano piece. I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what she said. How can I hear it? I said, just phone me. My phone rings to it. So she calls me right there. And she's standing two feet away oh, on her cell funny. phone. She rings my cell phone. And, of course, there she hears it. She says, oh, my God. She said, I played it when I was a kid. That's great. <laughs> so yeah, those I guess, are the things you yeah. know, that keep me going. Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's good. So you don't, you don't play anymore? Like you don't tour anymore or do any live shows or anything now? No, I stopped touring in 2018. Okay. Because frankly, it just got, you know, your audiences dwindle. Yeah. And then you have to decide do I want to quit this while I'm ahead or do I want to make a fool of myself? And so I didn't want to go until I dropped. And Brian, yeah. we did our last tour together and it was all minus one. Yeah. Just okay. me, cool. me, the merch guy, Brian, and my wife. Oh, nice. <laughs> Four of yeah. us. We did this oh, concert orchestra tour across Canada. Yeah. Oh, neat. And that was the end of that. Then I had a stroke in 2020. Oh, I'm sorry to hear and, that. Well, I got off lucky again. Yeah. Um, coincidence? I don't know. But anyhow, I've recovered about 99%. And um, the only yeah. thing that's left is, is that once in a while, my brain doesn't connect with my left hand. Hmm. Interesting. And I can't play in public anymore. Yeah. Because I never can trust it. <laughs> right. Okay. Sometimes it works and sometimes it don't. <laughs> yeah. Well... It sounds like you're in a happy place and you've done everything you wanted to do and it, and it worked out pretty good. So if you can say you're happy and you smile on your face, then that's, that's a good life. I certainly am. And my tractor's in the garage now. It's no longer under the piano. There you go. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Many thanks to Frank Mills for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. And more information is available at frankmills.com, a great website with lots of info. And he's uh, on Facebook as well, Frank Mills Music. So check it out. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.